So continuing with this um, uh, uh, occasion when a number of um, doctors and other professionals had come to visit uh, Lumpur Cha, and then uh, after his initial talk he goes into a a little um, period of questions. And the first question is, because he was talking about monkeys, if you remember last time, those who were here yesterday, uh, let monkeys be monkeys without getting emotionally involved and such like. So it was, it was a theme we were talking about. And uh, the question is, suppose a monkey starts playing with fire. If we just let it be the way it'll be, it could burn down our house. Ajahn Chah responds, no, 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 it's not like that. That's a different matter. We know monkeys and we should have greater wisdom than monkeys. Will you let them get hold of fire and burn down your house? When there's a crisis, you'll know how to deal with it. For example, everyone has to die, but still we take care of our lives. Taking care of it the way that you doctors do, curing and controlling illness, not to prevent death. There's no such thing. There is no such medicine. If you know this, you care for your patients and treat illness like this. Maybe a criminal comes to the hospital. He was involved in a robbery and got shot. The hospital has to take care of him. Some will then say that the doctors are supporting a thief, saving him so he can go and rob houses. It's not like that. It's the responsibility of the doctors to take care of people. If you take care of them and when they recover they go and commit crimes, that's not your fault. You take care of people according to your function and responsibility as doctors. It's not that you're treating them to continue their career as careers as criminals, you're only doing your duty to relieve, suffer, to relieve suffering and to treat illness and injury. When people get sick, they rush to find a doctor. Likewise, if a monkey is about to set our house on fire, we'll do something to stop it. We have to take care of things and employ caution. But, speaking of our house, we don't need a monkey to burn it down. There is already a demon living there. We don't need to take care of it. Having been born, people must die. Why should we take care of our lives? There is this question. We should take care of our lives just as doctors treat sick people, to get some temporary relief. Worldly people always complain, saying things like, these doctors are no good, they treated me and I didn't get better. Furthermore, you can see that people are always dying. They indulge in this kind of mad talk. Doctors do not treat people to prevent death. They don't have the medicine to to prevent death. No matter what level of study they go through, they never learn such a thing. That is not the province of doctors. Their responsibility is to alleviate suffering from illness and help people survive one day at a time. That's all. So that's called not letting the monkey burn down your house. We have to use wisdom to take care of things. When we, know the, we, when we know what monkeys are all about, if a monkey is bringing fire to the house, will we just sit by and watch? We know the traits of monkeys, and we're able to watch out for them and exert control, just like with children. We have to know their ways, and we have to take care of them. If we know how children are, we'll watch over them carefully. They could burn or cut themselves or fall into ditches. We can't just leave them to themselves. Someone who employs such Equanimity here is not someone who understands children. Someone like that will let the monkey burn down the house. So this is uh, Lumpur Chah speaking on this issue of misunderstanding the uh, concept of um, being with the way things are <laughs> and, uh, and just letting the world be as it is. So people very easily misinterpret that as passivity or a kind of disconnect or uh, just... Uh, and not um, being ready to take action or use their their common sense or their intuitive wisdom. And as it is extraordinarily common how people uh, read things in that way when coming across principles like non-attachment, non-grasping, being the one who knows, being the, uh, the, the mindful observer and so on and so forth, then it's, it's taken to mean, therefore, switch off any capacity to act or to, to, to speak or to... Um, to to do any, anything, which is that to me is a is a substantial doing. <laughs> that our responsivity is part of the way things are. Our life is part of the lives of of others, and we're connected. So 
um, that sense of oh, I'm I'm just being the observer. I'm just I'm practicing non-attachment, um, and then so then not speaking or acting or or stopping the monkey from burning down the house. That is a deliberate action. <laughs> that is kind of switching off or buffering, uh, numbing your own natural responsivity. And so um, uh, this is what Dhampachara is uh, addressing here. It's like, no, it's a misunderstanding about you know, observing and being with the way the world is. Um, if there is a crisis, you'll know how to deal with it. And then he gives us a very good example about, about doctors. Like, you know, no doctor has ever been able to, to cure death. No matter how good a doctor is, every patient dies eventually. It might not be the fault of the doctor at all. Uh, the doctor might have done everything that was possible for, for them to do, but every being that, was, that has been born, will uh, the body will die one day. That's, that's the, the fact of nature. And uh, there's nobody uh, around in the world that I know of that's... Uh, the sort of the the uh, the dying switch didn't get didn't get flicked, and they're you know three and a half thousand years old. <laughs> they would make the news, but um, that uh, that it just doesn't happen. So he's making this distinction. You know, doctors do the job of helping us to look after our bodies and stay healthy and look after our lives, but they know that eventually you know the life is going to come to an end, and so that um, you, but you do the best you can along the way, as he says. Um, to get some temporary relief, and but then he goes into the, uh, this observation that uh, people complain, um, assuming that uh, if they're a doctor, they can they can always uh, succeed in curing illnesses and make the person live forever. Those doctors are no good. They treated me, but I didn't get better. Furthermore, you can see that people are always dying. So that. Uh, uh, people keep dying, therefore doctors have failed. Therefore, close the hospitals and don't bother. It's like no, that's <laughs> completely foolish. So, uh, what Lumpochara is trying to do, and he's talking to a bunch of doctors uh, as well as local administrators, is um, you know, don't don't look at these uh, things in these kind of distorted or deluded ways, but rather use your common sense and, and look at uh, how you. Know, you you know that every patient is going to die one day, but you do the best you can to extend that life, improve the quality of life, and cure what illnesses can be cured. But eventually, uh, it's all going to go in, in one direction, but it's worthwhile to do the best you can uh, along the way. When we know what monkeys are all about, if a monkey is bringing fire to the house, will we just sit by and watch? And again, I was telling that story about uh, Ajahn Tongrat and the... Uh, uh, going on the arms round with uh, Achan Man and this being, them being threatened by a, a billy goat um, on the path that was about to charge the Ajahn at the front of the, the line, the narrow path, and the goat was about to charge. And Achan Tongrat kind of came up from the back and ran up and kicked the goat and, and so drove it off into the bush. And um, so he was one who was prepared to take action. <laughs> but that was also, I would say, a... a, a an act based on non-attachment. Again, like Ajahn Chah was saying, how Ajahn Tongra was very expressive, very outspoken, and very uh, in, uh, active. But uh, inside, there was, uh, he, he was, uh, even though he might be, seem to be un unrestrained on the outside, within he was very, he was very, very peaceful. He was, very, he was completely quiet inside. And there was this, these external forms that his personality and his uh, his actions took in terms of responding to the situations he was in, and then um, yeah, also then comparing it to how looking after children. If you know how children are, we watch over them carefully. Uh, they could cut or burn themselves or fall into ditches. You can't just leave them to themselves, so that you know, children don't have the so wisdom and uh, and uh, capacity to uh, to protect their own bodies or to to. Um, get a sense of how the world works so they'll, they'll run after a, a, their, their ball rolling into the street they'll run after the ball and they completely ignore the fact that there's a car or a, a lorry coming that can knock them down so the parent you know, <laughs> mindfully and kindly grabs the, the, the child's t-shirt and says no, you be careful there's a car coming um, so that uh, some, someone who employs equanimity like sort of switching off and being passive so I would say that's the kind of foolish sort of equanimity or, or foolish passivity is not someone who understands children. Uh, someone like that will let the monkey burn down the house. So any thoughts, questions?
reflections? Okay, so to continue. You may feel that living at home is troublesome, but when you leave for a while, you start to feel homesick. What should you do? It's strange, isn't it, the way of humans? It's only because when you go somewhere, you don't really reach the place of satisfaction. Your thinking doesn't get there. This is what the Buddha called the cycle, the bhavachaka, or the vata samsaran, the cycle of samsara. So you come to this monastery for training, to do something worthwhile, but the feeling is still not the same as being at home. No place can be as pleasant and enjoyable as home for you, as home for you. so you're always thinking of home. It means that the business of good and evil is not yet finished. You're still doing things in a worldly way, so it isn't finished. If it, is, if it isn't finished, it means you haven't put things down. If you've not put them down, you're still carrying them. Carrying them, you feel the heaviness, and you can see the fault of it. It comes down to practicing patient endurance. There isn't really anything to it. It's said that patience is the mother of all dharma. Patience brings good results. But then, when good comes, we're often deluded by it. Strange, isn't it? We should be able to reach a conclusion to all of this. Things are good, but we get deluded. Then there is more suffering. Good and evil, love and hate, don't go beyond, but always remain within their limitations. We really ought to think about the Dharma and internalize it to resolve these matters. If we're suffering, we expect another person to cure it for us. But this is not something another person can do. She can explain the path for curing suffering, only that. The matter of really ending suffering is something to be accomplished personally. The Supreme Teacher said that a targeter is only the one who points out the way. He tells you to pick this up from here and put it there. Pick this up from there and put it here. He teaches you how to swim. It's not that he swims for you. If you want the targeter to swim for you, you're only going to drown. Last year, some officials came here for a meeting to learn the right way, quote-unquote. Why? Because things were not going well and they didn't feel good about it. So they came to learn about right understanding. But to get beyond feeling good, when things seem right and suffering over things not going well is something not generally understood, the world is like this. Toward the sufferings we create, the heaviness, we need to have some patience and endurance. We know things are heavy, but we have desire, so we pick them up. They will be heavy, so then we really have to endure. So the, uh, these points uh, here, he's sort of talking very much about human nature and um, that sense of home, uh, that your home is where you're really comfortable and that when you, you go place, you go somewhere to get something to, uh, to, uh, for your work or for a holiday or whatever. Um, but uh, often going to that place to find that, that mysterious quality, then, then we don't find it. So we go to look for another place or we go back home he says, this is what the Buddha called the cycle, the, the bhava chakra, the, the wheel of becoming. And then this um, uh, about picking things up and feeling the heaviness, as it said uh, uh, in a previous reading, uh, people want a lot, but they don't want, they don't want it to be heavy. Like, <laughs> like the two go together. If you want to have a lot of stuff, then you, uh, you're going to have to carry it. It's like uh, Lumpo Cha's... Um, description of the first time he went on Tudong that um, he was he was very attached to um, to chili and uh, he wanted to make sure that he always had uh, had chili with his uh, with his food each day and so that um, uh, also he wasn't very strict in the Vinaya in those days so you know uh, according to the the monastic rule you can't carry a chili with you uh, overnight and then mix it with your with food the next day that that uh, you could you can have chili as a medicine but then you can't mix it with any food you just have to have it separate from the food Ajahn Chah hadn't learned that that uh, refinement of the rules at this point so not only did he take some chili with him but he took a pestle and mortar a stone pestle and mortar <laughs> in his uh, in his luggage 
And he describes this, it's a very kind of funny description of him going off on Tudong and then after a couple of miles, like, oh, this bowl is so heavy, this bag is really tough. And, and then he starts to look at the things that he's been carrying with him and, it, and then, oh, I can't let the pestle and mortar go. I mean, how am I going to pound up the chili if I don't have these? I've got to, I've got to keep this. And wrestling with this sense of this, these stone implements that he's carrying with him. And he said that as they go along, he's, he was slowly, bit by bit, shedding more and more of his things. And eventually the pestle and mortar had to get left behind, get given away along, along the road, because it's just so heavy to carry. So he's speaking from personal experience, uh, that uh, you want a lot of things, but you don't want it to be heavy. So, well, if you, <laughs> if you have this, then you'll have that. This is the cause, this is the effect. So, so then talking a lot about patience, patience is the mother of all dharma, and uh, when it was Marga Puja, we were reciting the um, Ovada Patimoka, um, that uh, instruction, the very first instruction that the Buddha gave uh, on discipline and uh, the guidance to the 1250 arahants. So patient endurance is the supreme practice for burning up uh, unskillful karma. Um, uh, all Buddhas have said that, that Nibbana is the supreme Dhamma, and then uh, so on and so forth. So, but it starts off with patient endurance. Kanti Paramang Tapo Titika is the supreme austerity or the supreme practice. Patience bring good, brings good results, but then when good comes, we're often deluded by it. Strange, isn't it? So uh, it's a very quick jump. From, <laughs> yes, if we do practice patience, then there can be benefit from that, but then the, mi- the mind can grasp the, the, bene- uh, the beneficial qualities or the happiness or freedom that comes from that and then uh, makes the even good and pleasant results into a burden or a problem or a, a, a thing that is possessed. So then he says, good and evil, love and hate, that... Uh, uh, if we are attached to any of those extremes, then they're always going to be um, burdensome. There's always going to be that sense of tension. Um, and also that this is not something that anybody else can, can do for us. The Tathagata points out the way that the practice has to be done by each one of us. And then he gives us a very good example of, he teaches you how to swim. It's not that he swims for you. you, know, you can't, it's not the way that swimming works. You have, to, you have to do it for yourself. You have to learn it for yourself. And then again, with respect to um, to patient endurance towards the suffering, towards the sufferings that we create, the heaviness, we need to have some patience and endurance. So that is, in a way, is one of the the, the sort of central themes of the practice of the forest tradition is patience and uh, that sense of being able to be open to uncomfortable or painful experience. Uh, you're not torturing yourself but you're consciously using difficulty as a way of freeing the heart. So that's a, in the, um, the kind of spirit of the Dutanga practices, the austere practices, and the um, and in the forest tradition, that, that's almost always the sort of, uh, the, the first thing that's, that's sort of approached or is talked about is um, uh, be patient or, you know, you should develop the strength and the, the wisdom to endure. And I've mentioned a few times before, but the, uh, again, the English word patience doesn't quite carry the same meaning as the paramita of patience or patient endurance in, in the Pali, the Kanti uh, uh, paramita. Um, because in, in Buddhist psychology, patience is not a state of waiting. In the English use of the word patience is also about how to deal with something uncomfortable or burdensome or challenging, but it carries a sense of just gritting your teeth and being strong and uh, enduring with a kind of uh, gritted teeth. It, so it's, it's got some good qualities to it, not, not sort of crumpling or, or, or giving up um, and, and sort of running away, but rather um, it's a state of suffering, whereas in the, the Buddhist approach or Buddhist psychology, uh, the, the parameter of patience is about, it's not about, uh, about just gritting your teeth or, or being strong with a quality of resentment or, or being, um, uh, say, ready to wait until it's all over, but 
the patience which is the paramita is a, is a letting go of time it's about not wait so genuine patience is not waiting it's not a state of waiting you're not waiting for the painful thing to be over it's the mind that's let go of time altogether and so it's not creating the idea of oh soon this will be over and then I'll be happy I'll be comfortable but rather in this moment there is this it's, it's exactly this and not adding anything on to the the, uh, the present experience even though that present experience might be painful the mind is not waiting for it to be over it's not trying to get away from it it's not resenting it not blaming anybody for it it's just uh, being uh, open to that so it the the kanti paramita um, is about working skillfully with uncomfortable physical states physical um, feelings or mental feelings and situations but it's uh, and it's it's very very helpful to understand that it's about uh, timelessness that not waiting not even though you might be good at waiting <laughs> to, uh, and that you can you can uh, sit for hours and hours and hours and and just endure but genuine patience the patience that's the real parameter the way of of transcending is is letting go of time it's not it's not a state of waiting but rather it's a surrender of the the mind's attachment to uh, to time also his uh, just uh, going back a little bit when he says good and evil love and hate don't go beyond but always remain within their limitations we really ought to think about the dharma and internalize it to resolve these matters so this is one of those instances where Lumpacha is encouraging the the quality of wise reflection. He knew he had a bunch of you know doctors and professionals, people who have uh, got uh, advanced education with him. Say, well, use your thinking faculty, <laughs> use your mind's ability to recognize and explore how things work. Look at look at this stuff um, to uh, th- to see. Well, what am I hoping for? What am I presuming? What am I expecting? What am I fearing? Why does this? Why does my mind make this important or that not important? So many, many times he was encouraging that kind of dig into it, look and see what are the, what are the things that motivate you? What are you afraid of? What are you trying to incline towards? And using wise reflection as very much as an adjunct, as a as support for uh, for dharma practice. And it's it's the fact that one of the four conditions supportive of stream entry is yoniso manasikara. So the third of the four uh, conditions that support stream entry is wise reflection. And so it's very very much a theme of his teaching, encouraging people, like, and then using his own example of his own thought processes. So seeing this, and that, so then the, uh, I tried that, or this came to mind. So he both for himself and what he encouraged in others was a, a strong. Uh, application of that capacity to explore, investigate, and recognize the the patterns of how things affect each other. Uh, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. Um, I kind of like very much this idea of Kantian's timelessness uh, in a way, but the fact that when someone realizes. Uh, the, the impermanence of all conditions, uh, one can anyway find some kind of support in the fact that uh, you know that it's going, even if it's an unpleasant condition, it's going to end, even if you're not waiting for it. <laughs> I mean, knowing that uh, there is comfort in impermanence. <laughs> yes, in yeah, yeah. So that, that's not a, a not right thinking or. No, I say that that's. Uh, there's a. In the. the Verses of Venerable Sariputta, his sort of enlightenment verses in the Theragata. There's, there's a very famous passage where Sariputta is talking about his attitude towards being very old and the, his, um, uh, you know, the uh, the likelihood of his the death of his body in the near future. He says, "I do not long for death. I do not long for life. But I know the time is coming, like a servant does their wages." So that, uh, it's a very succinct little thing. He knows Friday's coming. I'm not waiting for Friday, but it is coming. <laughs> so the uh, and that the uh, that sense of the uh, 
I do not long for death, I do not long for life. So not attached to life and fearing death or not wanting to die. And not, um, not wanting to die, so his aches and pains and the aging body will be, will, will, uh, be let go of. But you know, I do not long for death, I do not long for life. But I know the time is coming, like a servant does their wages. So that, yes, there's likely to be an ending of this painful body having to be experienced you know, all the time. <laughs> so, but I know that's coming, but not counting the minutes, but just, yeah, that, that's on its way. So that is a, a, um, a, I feel, a good representation of, yeah, that this is impermanent and it, it cannot last forever. So, but without grasping and relishing that, just because you know, it's a Venerable Sariputta was an arahant when he made those, when he he made he made those comments. So it uh, it gets a, a very skillful expression of that. You know, I'm not trying to hold on. I'm not trying to push away. But there's something very pleasant is likely to be coming very you know, sometime soon, or at some point. Okay. So to continue. When we were students, we saw adults and thought how happy they must be. We saw them doing all kinds of things. People such as teachers, merchants, employers or administrators, and we wanted to be like that. So we worked at our studies with the hope of becoming just like them. But now, now that we're in the same positions, we don't really have such great happiness, do we? The suffering and difficulty are still there. We haven't escaped from that condition of unsatisfactoriness. We haven't escaped now, and we really, sorry, and we don't really know if we can escape in the future. Things just keep getting heavier as we go along. This place is called the world. World or loco in Pali means darkness. However, uh, however much the world progresses and develops, darkness develops just that much. The progress of the world is just the progress of darkness. People talk enthusiastically about how the world is progressing, but it's only darkness spreading. In our monastery, we previously had no electricity. People used to say, oh, it's really dark here. How comfortable it would be if we had electricity, if we had running water. But these things don't appear by themselves. They take a considerable investment of money, and the ability to get them comes from difficulty. And then... When we do have the bright electric lights, it's actually, it actually enshrouds the mind and darkens it further. Convenience covers the mind in darkness because it is the nature of people to want everything the easy way. The easier and more convenient things are, the lazier people get. In the past, when the country was not materially developed, people would build their toilet way out in the forest. They'd have to make some effort to walk out there to use it. Now this can't be done. People won't go out. Wherever they sleep, there must be a toilet right there. I don't know what they want. Does that really bring well-being? The bedroom is here and the bathroom is here too. People expect this. Sorry, people expect this will make for convenience and happiness, but it isn't really so. Being too comfortable just leads to heedlessness, and people want to take it much further than this, but there's never any satisfaction. It's never enough. And then they complain about their suffering. So I'm not absolutely sure about uh, uh, Ajahn Chah's etymology here. The, the word uh, aloka, aloka with a long A at the beginning, means light. So loka, uh, as in the world, he's rendering as darkness. I'm not sure that's actually accurate. Um, any knowledge on the Pali on that, sister? I think it's, a, it's what they call a... Um, a folk etymology is my impression that it, because if it was a short a aloka uh, then that would be not loka would so so that would make sense but my my understanding that the the word for light has got a long a at the beginning aloka um, and so that uh, taking the long a off the front is not uh, uh, is not making the negative into a positive um, so. So whereas our loka is light, loka wouldn't mean darkness. But I could be totally wrong, which I request 
forgiveness, but I think it's one of those folk etymologies that it's kind of it's kind of neat in explaining a point, but it doesn't actually have any backup in in reality. But uh, yeah, but anyway, the the world is um, uh, one one of the um, the ways the Buddha talked about loka as the the world. He said, "Why is it, he said loka loka? Why is it called loka? Because uh, it is lujati, and lujati means distorted or, or bent. So that he uses that um, that uh, that kind of derivation or that association in his in the Buddha's explanation of it." Uh huh. Could, could be yes. yes. Can investigate a little bit. But then again, he's also talking about the uh, the easier and more convenient things are the lazier people get. So Wat Pong uh, held out for a long time without electricity or running water, and that would be the what well, part of the daily routine would be hauling water up from the wells and carrying it to large jars around the monastery, so it could be used in different places. That was. Water hauling. Those of you who have seen the, the Mindful Way documentary or the um, uh, Blue Eyes and Saffron Robes, which is uh, another or another one uh, of that same series called It's Meant to Be Boring. That you have to see those various scenes of water hauling, carrying water through the forest on the. With used to use five gallon kerosene cans and a, and a bamboo pole carried between two people to get take the water around the forest. <clears throat> but uh, Wat Pong does have electricity in running water these days, <laughs> so, as do most of the, the branch monasteries. And then he talks about the uh, how you know it used to be that the toilet was right out in the forest. You had to uh, to not uh, have a conveniently close to the to the house, but you have to go and and walk to to use the toilet. It's interesting that uh, in some office buildings now, apparently nowadays because um, of health concerns for people working in offices, they deliberately put the bathrooms a walk down the corridor so that during the course of the day, any, uh, anybody working in the offices has to make a, a certain amount of, uh, of uh, mileage um, traveling up and down the corridors to get to the bathrooms because they, uh, they realize that people are having a very, very sedentary life in the offices and that uh, to help provide some exercise as, nat- as a natural part of the of the daily routine, they deliberately put the bathrooms uh, far away so that everyone's got to do a bit of walking up and down the corridors to uh, to exercise themselves to just uh, uh, get through the the ordinary convenience uh, the ordinary activity of a day. So I was quite impressed with the thing. Oh, that's good design. <laughs> Not always ultra convenient. So any thoughts, questions? Okay, so to continue. Speaking of the way that we make use of our resources, mostly we feel that we don't have enough money to get by. What should we do to make it enough? Seems to me there is so much money, but it's never enough. That's why I say there are no rich people. At least I've never seen any. I only see people who feel they don't have enough. And the Buddha taught about earning and spending money. Earning it is not so hard. The way we use it is what's really important. We should earn our living in a way that is right livelihood. Having earned money, we should make the best use of it, conserving it for meaningful ends. Whatever you may need, don't let it go to excess. The Buddha taught extensively about this, but we don't really pay heed. Whatever we see others getting, we want to match them. However much we earn, we are ready to spend. So on this, uh, I thought I'd um, share the um, some of the Buddha's advice on uh, skillful use of resources. So this is the Sigalaka Sutta, advice to Sigala. And so this is often quoted as part of the um, the Buddha's advice about skillful living. And with regards to your earnings, he um, uh, he says. This, you know, the wise person should divide their wealth in four. Uh, one to enjoy one quarter, do you enjoy at will, use whatever you like. Half of it, two parts, uh, should be invested and um, put to work. So to, to be um, uh, in the, the, the work that you do or to um, be put into various projects. 
and the fourth part, uh, the last quarter, to put aside as savings for a reserve in times of need. So that's the Buddha's advice on on uh, financial management. <laughs> so, so a quarter, use as you like. Two parts, invest in your your work or your your um, in, uh, or in various other enterprises, and a quarter put aside for a rainy day. So that's Sutta number 31 in the Diganikaya, the long discourses. There's a lot more very, very helpful advice in that, but i just leave it there for today. Also, um, there was, a, I often quote, uh, a, a conversation that took place between a reporter, I think, from the New York Times and John D. Rockefeller when he was the richest man in the world about 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, and he was the owner of Standard Oil. And uh, so this reporter asked him, yeah, Mr. Rockefeller, you're the richest man in the world. Can you tell me how much money is enough? And Mr. Rockefeller apparently thought for a moment and said, just a little bit more. So Lumpur Shah was absolutely right. <laughs> Even if you're the richest person in the world, just a bit more would be enough. Yeah. But also, I think yeah, Ro uh, Rockefeller had enough wisdom to recognize, yeah, it's never enough. <laughs> and that he was sort of laughing at himself. Uh, in that way, I had a, a bit of a perspective on on that whole issue, but um, that's often how it is uh, for for people. That uh, you know, from a worldly pattern of thinking, we uh, we always need a bit more. And so, uh, so Lumpur Chah would make that comment that you know there are no rich people, and he knew that was a challenging statement. They go, oh, but this person's really rich, yeah, but <laughs> they're not rich because they've got. Um, their their wishes and their needs are uh, uh, soaking up all of the the income that they have. Oh, any thoughts, questions? Okay. To continue. Suffering. Who created it? We don't see. We say it is for this or that reason but we never point at the source. The root is here, but we're looking all over for it, blaming people and situations, so it doesn't become very clear. We don't really get down to it. We just look at things outside ourselves and are always trying to manipulate externals. We can look around and see when the house is not clean. We can see when the dishes are dirty. We can clean them up. Then the house is clean, the dishes are clean, but still, the mind is not clean. When the house is a mess, we'll probably feel uncomfortable and get to sweeping, washing and so forth. The mind can be dark and unpleasant, yet we don't see ourselves. So we go on complaining about our terrible suffering. When you think about it, we are really pretty pitiful. If we could put effort into cleaning up our minds, the way we do sweeping our houses, washing and scrubbing our clothes and doing the dishes, we would likely be at ease. But when we talk about cleaning like this, people don't know what we're getting at. It's just like someone being indifferent to whether the dishes are clean or dirty. It's an ignorant kind of indifference. We have to go to work and clean, otherwise we never reach the correct point, and the mind remains in this befouled, ignorant condition. The Buddha spoke of this as the mind not striving to see clearly, but just following its inclinations and ten tendencies. In our vernacular, we say following moods, tam arom. In our families today, we feel love, tomorrow, dislike. Today we love our children, but the next day we're exasperated and upset with them. Why is it like this? Why is it not stable? It means that the mind hasn't been trained. Love causes suffering to arise. Aversion causes suffering to arise. Too little and we suffer. Too much and we suffer. Where can we stay? Have you sought your dwelling place yet? Find the right place to stay. How many months and years have passed when you should have been seeking and building the place where you can be at peace, yet you're still in this condition? What's the reason? A husband and wife live together. There's really no reason they should quarrel, but quarrel they do, even to the point where one of them will get up and leave in the night, though they're likely to come back the next day. It's troublesome, really. I've come to think it's because people don't seek their true dwelling place. 
We don't clean in the place that really needs it. We scrub and sweep elsewhere. We don't make our minds clean. So, there's always confusion. We're always looking outside. The Buddha taught about turning inward. Turning inward to look at the mind. To see what is in the mind. So uh, again, this is a very, very uh, skillful and appropriate analogy. Um, just as we can notice, uh, if the if the, the dishes are, uh, are not washed or the, the our our room, our living place is, is not clean, we can dust things and sweep and clean up the cobwebs and wash the plates and do our laundry and so on and so forth. And that's very easy and and ready to work with. But that same kind of of scrubbing the mind and using the 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 time for meditation and to consider the effects of our our, our words and actions, you know that we we uh, we don't pay attention to or we don't give enough attention to, and so there um, uh, we always find ourselves in a state of discomfort. So the living space might be quite tidy and clean, but if the mind is still attached to like and dislike, hope and fear, gain and loss, praise and criticism, and so forth, then we're we're all uh, we're always in a state of discomfort, and he, he this uh, phrase he uses: um, people don't seek their true dwelling place. Uh, one of his most well-known talks um, was called "Our Real Home," which was given to uh, an elderly lay disciple in the village in Bangor, I believe, uh, a woman who'd been a a, a a supporter and a dedicated um, practitioner at the monastery for a long time. And her life was coming to an end, and so Lumpur had gone to her, her house when she's on her deathbed, and uh, the invitation of the family to give her a dhamma talk. And uh, so it's a very, very wonderful teaching. Our, and our real home is like, <laughs> what he's saying is that this house is not your real home. These, you know, when you when, when you die, can you take your pots and pans with you? You know, these the plates and pots and pans that you looked after, and they're so well worn from many years, many decades of use. They're going to stay here, you know. The, when when you die, they're not going to go with you. And how our real home is the jitta itself, is the heart itself. And so, um, uh, as he says, um, um, people uh, I uh, come to think it's because people don't seek their true dwelling place, their real home. Um, we don't clean in the place that really needs it. We scrub and clean elsewhere. We don't make our minds clean, so there's always confusion, and so that that uh, I mean that's what monasteries are for <laughs> to help us to discover our real home and to develop the capacity to to abide or to embody that uh, that quality of the Dhamma that is the the real home. The uh, the heart is where the home is, or the, you know, the home is where the heart is. That uh, the Dhamma is our real home, and it's. Uh, monasteries exist, and the training that we uh, we try to encourage and uh, enact here is discovering that that real home, that place where genuine satisfaction and security uh, can be found. That sense of there's no place like home. It's like <laughs> there's no place like the the heart, free of greed, hatred, and delusion. So, once again, any questions, thoughts? Okay, let's carry on. The Buddha taught about turning inward. Turn inward to look at the mind, to see what is in the mind. But these days, there are only force and hurry. Mangoes are never sweet now. They're forced. Before they're ripe, they're picked and artificially ripened. This is done because people want to get them in a hurry. So, when you eat them, you find they're sour. It's trying to match the desires of people to get things in a hurry, to get something good, something sweet. You have to let it be sour first, according to its own natural way. But we pick them early and then complain that they're sour. That also works with tomatoes, strawberries, <laughs> apples, yeah. all kinds of, not just mangoes. It's a, it's a, this is the way it, uh, when they're picked early and they're forced, or bananas, you know, it's a, it's a different quality. For the most part, things are imitations. We grasp these things that are false and uncertain as real. The Buddha wanted us to see that which is not false, but genuine. 
But these days, understanding is almost completely mistaken. People don't know anything about whether things are real or false. And when it's like this, all kinds of perceptions occur. Things that are false and contrived are taken for real. In this vein, the Buddha taught about turning inward to see. If the mind does not see and realize, there's no path to clarity. The Buddha said that one who is a teacher, like me, can end up a hungry ghost. A refined sort of hungry ghost. But how is this? There's a story I'd like to tell, a fable that is worth narrating. It's a little long, so try to bear with me. There was a person who had a very virtuous mind. Whatever was meritorious and skillful, he would strive to do that. Everything he did was refined and somewhat fastidious, like very careful and fussy. Everything had to be neat, everything in its place. When his children, nieces or nephews came to visit, he would get a little unhappy. The broom that belonged over here would be left over there. The kettle would not be put back where it was supposed to be. If anyone didn't do things his way, he would suffer. But he was a very refined person with a good orderly mind. One day he thought about building a pavilion in the forest, a sala, where people could take shelter. Hmm, building a sala here would be a good thing. I would accrue merit. Merchants and travellers could stop and rest here. They'd be comfortable and appreciate it greatly. Having thought about this, he went ahead and built it, and people made use of it. Later he passed away. After he died, because of his attachment to his virtuous activity, his consciousness returned to reside in that place, the place where he used to live and do his good deeds. He would check out the sala and see if it was being kept up. When he found parts that were messy, he'd be upset. And when he saw that it was neat and clean, he was happy, because his mind was like that, virtuous, neat and orderly. Then one day, several hundred merchants came to stay there. After taking dinner, they went to sleep, lying down in long rows. The owner of the hall was now this very refined, hungry ghost. He came to check whether they were sleeping in an orderly fashion. Patrolling up and down, looking around, he noticed that their heads weren't lined up straight. <clears throat> what to do? He thought it over and then pulled their feet to line up their heads evenly. He kept on pulling and tugging this row and then the next row and then the next one until he had them all adjusted right. But then he looked at their feet. <clears throat> now their feet were all out of line. What to do now? So he started pulling the heads up to align the feet. Once that was finally accomplished, he saw that the heads were out of line again. <sighs> What's the story here anyhow? He wondered. He went on like this through the night, bothered the whole time. Finally, he gave up, asking himself what the reason was for this. He sat down and thought and saw the light. People are not the same. Their heights differ, so they can't be lined up straight. He then let go of the matter because he saw some are short and some are tall. That's just the way it is. He let go, and he felt better because he saw that people aren't the same. Before, he'd expected them all to be the same. When they weren't, he tried to make them the same. But it was impossible, and he suffered for it. Then he stopped and contemplated the matter and saw the truth. Ah! People are like that. They're not all the same height. And he felt better. It's similar for us. We have to see the causes of things. We have to see that people are not all the same. This is something worth pondering because we can't change certain things. It won't do to go cutting off their legs to make them even. Grasping gets us stuck in attachment to how we expect things to be. We people are like this. We have different work and responsibilities. Some will be fast and efficient, some slow. All sorts of differences. It's easy to become a hungry spirit if you view it wrongly. Me too. I can become a hungry ghost over this, though I become aware of it quickly. Hey, you're becoming a hungry ghost. Cut it out. I have my disciples and I want them to improve, to develop by following our mode of training. Sometimes I suffer over this. When that happens, I remind myself, I've become a hungry ghost again. I teach myself all the time like this. 
In this way, we can take birth as hungry ghosts often. We don't give up easily. We have to teach ourselves to become skilled in dealing with things, knowing the causes and results. Then we can let people be as they are, let them do as they do. We let go and can be light-hearted about it. We may want them to be a certain way, but the problem is not because of them, it's because of us. Our own minds are obscured, so we think it is because of this or that person. That's not so. It's because of us. People are not the same, but we expect them to be the same. If we solve the problem of the way that we we see things, we'll be all right. Someone rides a motorcycle. He loses control and goes down. Then he'll say, ah, the motorcycle made me fall. Actually, he made the motorcycle fall because he couldn't drive it well. But he says, the motorcycle made him fall. I'll sum it up. For children and adults, the situation is different. If children do wrong, you can forgive them because they don't really know anything. If adults do wrong, people don't want to forgive because they should know better. The Buddha said that someone who doesn't know right from wrong can be taught to know. Someone who knows but doesn't act accordingly is hopeless. The person is called heedless and cannot really be taught. People end up miserable only because they don't look at themselves. We're always looking at other things and people. Looking outside for something that is attractive, trying to make externals pleasing. We never dig internally, never work on ourselves and become bright and clear. The result can only be constant difficulty and confusion. Wherever we look, there's darkness. Why? Because the eyes are not good. We complain of the dark. We cannot see light and colour, so we say they could not possibly exist. Okay, that's true for the blind. But actually, we're upset for nothing. The problem is in the eyes. Nothing is seen clearly, neither light nor colour. But if the eyes are good, those things appear, and we'll know what they are. We don't really examine this problem. Mostly, we look elsewhere, so we don't have happiness. We should learn how to make this life of ours joyous. There really are things that can make that happen. So this is a, a, um, a, a Buddhist example of... Uh, well, in the European mythology, there was the uh, the bed of Procrustes in Greek mythology. So Procrustes had a guest house and had a particularly malicious intent, so that uh, guests were welcome to come and stay at the, at the guest house. But if uh, and they had this particular bed, people would were given to sleep on. And if they were too tall for the bed, he'd come in the night and chop the feet off. And if they were if they were too short, then he'd come in the night and Tie them, tie them on a rack and stretch them out so that everyone always was the right size for the bed until someone came along that was exactly the right size and then Pro- Procrustes took a tall but that's called a Procrustean bed have you ever come across that? Um, and Lompochar giving a, 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 a classical um, the story of this from the Buddhist, Buddhist scriptures and he also, uh, that was the advice he gave to, to uh, Lumpur Sumedha when he was a new uh, uh, in the very first rains retreat at Wat Pananachat after uh, it had started in 1975 and about halfway through the, the Vasa then he went over to Lumpur Cha and said Lumpur it's terrible, it's, these monks are so difficult they're, they're, you know, I thought uh, you know, this, this is really a nightmare and Lumpur Cha was, thought it was hilarious he said you thought being an abbot was just getting a big triangular cushion you know? <laughs> <laughs> You, you get the f- first choice of the food and you get a big cushion to lean against. It's like, nah. it's like no tomatoes. And then he gave exactly this example. And so Lumpur Samedo would often mention this in Dhamma talks, how so you get all the heads lined up and then the feet are out of order. And you get all the feet lined up and the heads are out of order. So people are different. You know, whether it's uh, uh, Pabakara or Apanya or Achin Kemadamo or uh, Anando or Viradamo or Pasno. Everyone is different. Some are, some are tall, some are short, uh, some are, uh, are quick, some are slow. You know, these uh, everyone is different. And the, the other story that's often told in that uh, in this light is um, when Ajahn Jayasaro was the abbot of Wat Nanachat many years later. That would have been um, say Ajahn Pasno left in that. So Ajahn Jayasaro was was the abbot there from about 1997 to uh, 2002. And uh, during that period, um, they had a, a group photograph at the end of the rains retreat, 
and one of the monks there was skilled at Photoshop, and uh, he pasted Ajahn Janasaro's head onto the, all the bodies of the monks and novices in the photograph, <laughs> and then he put the caption on it, the perfect monastery. <laughs> Everyone agrees with me. You know, so that, uh, but yeah, people vary, and then we expect uh, to, for people to change so that we'll feel happy. But uh, happy, if, if, if uh, I want you to be different so I'll be happy, then I'm looking in the wrong place. And so that uh, if the mind is doing that, and it's also uh, one of the, another instance where Ajahn Chara is talking about his own internal process. Like, oh, look, I'm becoming a hungry ghost. I'm saying, this monk, should be, this monk is really slow. He should be faster. That monk's too fast. He should slow down. And that uh, catching himself, making those kind of judgments, and and um, being a hungry ghost over uh, over the um, uh, faculties and dispositions, the characters of different people. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes, Jenny. Um, Ajahn, I, I uh, perhaps uh, another way of looking at um, the situation of uh, working with others is that um, I found it helpful to, to, to look at it in the, in a, in the way of um, the only person that you can change is yourself. So, you know, it gets, it get, gets around that business of trying to um, get people to change. Uh, it's, um, yeah, if that's right at the center of the picture then you'll be fine yeah things will be fine <laughs> but uh, uh that if that's really clear that i mean it's rather like swimming or you know or riding a bicycle you know you can't ride a bicycle for somebody else you know you can teach them how to get on the bike and how to, to balance but they have to learn themselves you you can't swim for somebody else it's just, and so uh, that um, changing your own mind that's where there's the locus of control uh, and the capacity for decisions to really have a, an impact that's where it's it's located and so that in a way the, the Buddha Dharma is really founded upon that it's like no matter how glorious or wise or uh, virtuous or enlightened that the teacher is the teacher can't <laughs> solve your your attachments for you that they can point things out and, and help you to help yourself uh, but there, there's, there's such a strong tendency for think if you were different, I would be happy. Is a sort of a, like a, a natural worldly reaction, and that just like a child, you know, a child sort of goes running through the kitchen and 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 doesn't notice that the the door of the fridge is open. Goes running into the kitchen, bang, you know, runs into the the, the door of the fridge, and then <laughs> and then bad fridge, you know, and kind of smacks the fridge to punish it because it was in the way. It's like well, you're a child, you know, you're four years old, and so you blame the fridge for getting in your way. It's like somebody left the door of the fridge open and you just ran into it, but a child's mind is you blame the fridge for getting in your way. That's, and that's how we, we function as, as adults as well. That we, and that degree of, of self-reflection that you're describing is, is, I would say, is a huge piece of of the training, especially living in community or working with others and in the workplace or the family or the the um, in a monastery or wherever in society, so that that sense of um, yeah I, I might have this feeling if only you were different, I would be happy <laughs> that 's the feeling that 's happening here, and uh, uh, so that the mind is creating that, but it doesn 't have to buy into it, and that 's okay. And then looking at, okay, what, what can I do with this mind in this moment? What can be done to help not create suffering around this or to help work with this situation in a skillful way? And so that if that's there at the center, then you find you, you are actually able to help other people more effectively. If the, the first thought is always about fixing others, then it... Uh, it There's it, a lot of suffering around that. Yeah, yeah. It's never going to work. You all need to be different, so this will work properly. <laughs> it's like a, uh, like a, a deaf conductor, you know, like Beethoven conducting a, an orchestra when he can't hear. It's like the, the, if the, you're not really receiving the uh, attuning to the, the group, 
and paying attention, then necessarily you're going to be out of the rhythm and you're going to lose track of what's going on and you can't really effectively help. But it's when you're really attuned um, to the to the group and then you let that attunement guide your own changes, how you're adjusting your own attitude and whether to move forward or hold back or whatever. So that attunement to the situation, then that 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 have its effect on your own jitta, and then from that, then the, what arises is the the motivation to act or to speak or to be quiet or to you know, to take an initiative or to leave things alone. You know, and so that it's you know that it needs a an a, a, a awareness of the other people in the group. And attuning to that, but then letting that inform how you you can best change and adjust to help things along uh, in a skillful way. Okay, I think seven o'clock has come around again, so let's leave it there for today.